Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. This is Joey Klein. Welcome to Tech Talk. It's another Friday morning. I hope everyone is well out there. Uh, as we always do, we have three fantastic technology leaders in Atlanta to talk to today. First, we've got John Bradway, who's the Managing Director and Atlanta Lead for CapTech Consulting. Hey, good morning. Hey, John. Uh, then up, we've got Chris Duncan, who's the Chief Operating Officer for Decisely. Hey, good morning, Joey. And Rupin Patel, who is the Chief Strategy Officer for HealthGrades. Good morning. Guys, thanks all for coming. Okay, so as we always do, we're going in alphabetical order, and John, we're going to start with you. So uh, CapTech Consulting, give us the elevator pitch. Sure. So CapTech's a national consulting firm. What we, just put, simply put, what we do is solve complex business problems. Generally, we use technology to do it, but sometimes we, we stray into management consulting. Um, we started out as a technology development firm in 1997 and have a really – deep technical uh, talent bench that we pull from to you know, do traditional technology development projects as well as data analytics. And we now have an in-house digital agency that helps us to design the things we build. Huh. So, you, okay, th- this, is, this is interesting. You've brought in-house the agency function. What was the impetus for that? Well, we were kept being asked to build technology, and sometimes it was designed and sometimes it wasn't. And, you know, as you know, if you start building something they don't know what it's supposed to look like at the end, you're probably going to end up with uh, some, some rework. So we, we brought it in-house to be able to solve that problem from end to end for our clients. Okay. It was, it was a robust enough function at the point where you're being asked to do this that it just did not make sense to outsource anymore. Well, we, we didn't ever outsource it. We would partner with another agency. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to, to win a larger share of wallet. And also, Sometimes when you design things without understanding how they're going to be built, you can run into some technical issues uh, downstream. So by combining those two things into one team, we've found we've been able to offer better results to to the client. So you've been around for, if I'm doing the math, that is 22 years, but at the Atlanta presence is generally pretty new. Correct. We've been in Atlanta for three, three and a half years now. We the way the way CapTech grows is we follow our clients. Uh, we don't actually have any salespeople at CapTech. We we traditionally rely on relationships that are formed over a long period of time through our consulting activities. And we, we do a really good job. And that's, that is our sales effort is our clients, as they move to different places or talk to their friends, they pass us along. So we had a client that opened a large IT headquarters here in Atlanta, and we were able to win some work. And we've been able to parlay that into working for about 10 to 15 clients here in the Atlanta office. So, okay, you're, you're in a good position in that obviously client referrals are, are great, right? Growing organically like that is great. Um, you know, as, as a sales guy through and through, I'm always very interested in how people go out and acquire business. And so do you, you've come on as the head in Atlanta. Um, do you find that there's an opportunity to really go out there and maybe get a little bit more active on the BD front as opposed to, um, referral business? Yeah, we, we have to here Cause we, I mean, we are new to the market and Time to market is probably our biggest challenge. That people just don't understand who we are and how we work, and we're you know a premium provider of technology consulting services. That's that's what we strive to be. So it takes a while to get clients to understand that. Also on the recruiting side, to, for for technologists to understand who we are and seek us out. So it, it does take a little bit of legwork to be able to to get that business and to, and to hire top talent. Um, but that's that's part of the job, and you know we. we we do spend a fair amount of time going out and just introducing ourselves. Forums like this are great, so thanks for having us. Of course. And you know, we, we typically come with ideas. Uh, you know, there's common problems that face business today, so we have some unique perspectives on that. But we also spend time developing unique solutions for, uh, for our clients and, and potential new clients. I want to drill down into IT consulting because um, I think anyone listening to this has probably – clearly heard of the term, right? But it's maybe hard to define exactly what that is because it is very specific for different businesses. So let's say that you're at a cocktail party, you're talking to someone new and they've asked you that one liner, what do you do? And it's clear that they're interested in a little bit more so you can go into detail. What do you tell them? So for, for CapTech, I mean, like you said, everyone, everyone views it a little bit differently. For, for CapTech, we define it as helping you solve your most strategic and complex technology issue. Uh, companies are bringing largely bringing in 
the IT and technology function into their businesses. But sometimes they have uh, items that need additional support or they don't have the bandwidth to, to, to solve for at the moment, but they are critical to their operation. And, and that's where we succeed uh, is to come in, solve that. Uh, we're, we're a thousand people, so we're not designed to stay there for, for forever. Like some other technology firms, they, 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 they build and then maintain. It's our goal to build with the lens of transitioning internally uh, to the client and, ha- and have them take it over. So our approach from the beginning is to, well, first of all, we don't, a lot of IT shops have their own proprietary or pseudo proprietary technologies or methodologies that they follow. We're hundred percent custom. We always look at what's best for the client or what the client prefers and, and start from there. So that leads us back to the transition uh, in, internally. And so we're always coming in fresh and, you know, completely objective and non-biased. Okay. So um, obviously not breaching any confidentiality, but could you share a couple of recent success stories? Sure. So we, we don't talk about our clients. We, we do have strict on confidentiality with them, but the, the types of work that we've done recently here in Atlanta are using artificial intelligence and machine learning to identify fraudulent and erroneous healthcare claims uh, is something we've. Uh, this is not in Orlando. It's in Orlando, but we uh, we are a, a mobile developer for a large theme park in that area. We have recently supported uh, merger integration of a large financial services company uh, here in Atlanta. Let's see what else have we done. We, we're doing some work in the public sector, uh, helping to launch a uh, a new software solution that migrate from an old to a new uh, to. to help them transform. Um, we're helping a, a golf brand to uh, be really step into the digital space. They've, they've had a successful business selling clubs, but now they're looking to you know go to lessons and to some other areas. And so we have a, we, we're pretty broad based in terms of the clients that we serve, mm-hmm. but cover a lot of different ground within them. So how do you, okay, you, you, I think you touched on something interesting because you mentioned that uh, clearly you know, you named about five different industries um, and five different types of technology issues. Okay, so as the lead for the Atlanta office, how are you going about finding talent that is able to be adept at you know not just different industries, but of course different technological issues? Sure. So that I spend a lot of my time interviewing people, and we I, I just I just saw this the other day. We have about a two percent higher rate out of our interviews, not applicants interviews. So that's one in fifty, wow. right? Yeah. And so we, we're really selective about who we hire and l- looking for that exactly. We get a lot of people that come in that are really great technically, but they don't have the ability to be a consultant first, right? So we're looking for people that, that enjoy and thrive on solving a problem, not just wanting to work with a particular technology over and over again. So they, they get to do that, but what, what we want them to look at first is – Okay, there's a unique problem here and it has implications to our client. So how do we solve it in the right way using this technology set? And then that gives them the ability to look at lots of different uh, perspectives to help them grow in their career. And our our goal at CapTech, our mission from day one has been to be the best consulting firm to work for and with. And we rank in the top five of both of those categories consistently for the last 10 years. So we, our values and how we run the firm are very much aligned to being people first to to get them the exposure that they need and how we work with our clients to to kind of keep everyone in mutual alignment. Do you think? Um, well, look, that two percent rate is stunning, frankly. Um, and obviously, you're picky as you should be, but I feel that, and you, you find it amongst business leaders, you find it in the real estate industry as well that we all tout the amazing amount of talent that is being born and bred here in Atlanta. And I, I don't think it's just window dressing. I, I, I believe it's true. I think that the city is firing on all cylinders on a number of different fronts. But as someone who is literally engaged in this process every single day, you're searching for people with the technical skills, but also the soft skills, the emotional um, intelligence to be able to interact well with a client and nurture that relationship. Do you think that Atlanta is doing a good job with talent? We do. So we have a, a fairly robust college recruiting program, and Georgia Tech has put some of the top people across our company. Um, they've put some of the top people into that program over the last couple of years. So we're, we're really pleased by tech. We're now beginning to recruit in the Atlanta Union Colleges. Uh, which we've done. We did a hackathon actually recently with a client where we merged both Georgia Tech and some uh, some of the folks from uh, Spelman to come together and work t- together on teams. And it, it was it was 
fascinating to see, you know, how they mix together from a technical and non-technical background to form a really strong team. And that's very similar to what we do at CapTech every day. We, we want that diverse set of perspectives and backgrounds that can, that can form teams that are just unique and compelling. It, it shows to the client. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to hear. Um, I am going to push you a little bit more in Atlanta later on, but before we get there, so you and I know each other from a little bit of a past life. So when I was an MBA student at Emory, you were my mentor. Um, you went through the program as well, um, and you were heavily involved in entrepreneurial ventures before coming to CapTech. And so I'm curious what you have taken from, you know, kind of your own ventures to, you're, you know, you're not at a you know, massive global Fortune 500, but you're certainly at a much larger, more institutional company than you know the couple that you started before this. So, how have you have you sort of taken that entrepreneurial spirit and applied it to CapTech? So, I think two ways on that. The, the first was why I went to CapTech because um, I, I am entrepreneurial and CapTech is as well. And I was looking for a you know medium sized firm that could have the scale to execute upon things, but then also you know, the flexibility to be able to try different things. And we, we've, I, I, since I've been there, we've been able to try different innovation activities, uh, both internally to, to help our teams grow, but then also with our clients and, you know, pushing upstream in the value chain to compete more in the visioning and imagining work for our clients to help them understand what's possible. That, that, that's been a lot of fun. And I, I think the value to the client in that, given my previous startup experience is, you're always looking for product market fit and you're trying to find it quickly. I, I think some clients that are larger are somewhat constrained by all of their existing processes and infrastructure and, you know, all the things that are important to a large business to, to scale. But sometimes you got to learn how to cut through that and cut through it quickly to identify what the opportunities are. And you may be wrong as you are in a startup, you, it, you're trying, it's a continual chase, but helping them to just look, through a lens of an entrepreneur of, you know, how you would take it to a, uh, a VC, how would you raise money and taking some of those perspectives to our clients just to help them think through it as they evaluate opportunity. What, um, you know, one of the things that I find is important in, uh, you know, retaining really good talent is, uh, you know, look, wh- whether they actually have a stake in the business or not, making them uh, feel like they're, you know, they do have a stake in the business, um, making them think a little bit more entrepreneurially and outside of the box. Um, how do you find that you can get people who are, you know, W2 employees to really take, um, take ownership over the growth of CapTech and take ownership over um, themselves and not just have it be somewhere where they report to work every day? Sure. So we, we talk a lot about market development. We did a big goals kickoff in January this year where everyone has three, sometimes four goals. But one of those goals for every Atlanta consultant is to talk about how they can support the growth of our office. For some people, that may be helping with recruiting. For some, that may be participating in internal innovation challenge. For some, it might be to stretch themselves into a new role. But all of those things in aggregate help us to, you know, every day move forward uh, in, in the maturity and the in the culture of our office. So we spent time doing that. And I, I mentioned there, innovation challenges that that is a big one for us we do two to three of those a year where we we identify a topic it's been augmented reality machine learning currently we're doing uh you how to use technology to help those with just with disabilities and teams self-form and come up with their own ideas and we're a consulting company so we take that content and those proof of concepts out to our clients and so it allows our allows our team to experiment with new tools and scratch that creative entrepreneurial itch, but also generates ideas and, and, you know, opportunities for our, for our customer base, which has been, has has actually worked real well. There's two couple different things we've done that have turned into real opportunities for our client. That's great. So like uh, someone listening to this, um, name a couple, I mean, look, I I know that you guys do a all you know the work under the sun, okay. But if someone's listening to this and they think that they might be, you know, might make sense for them to talk to CapTech, like what sort of issues should they have for there to be a good fit between your two firms? Sure. So, uh, development velocity is a big one for us recently, and we solve that both from a technologist point of view, but also a more management consulting point of view. So, how do you align everything in your organization from just from traditional agile kind of thought process into DevOps and to, to, to maximize your velocity and the output of your teams uh, to, to grow your business. So we're spending a lot of time there in, in the transformation space. 
we spend a lot of time with people trying to determine how they want to use digital or various technologies for the, for the growth of their business. Uh, we, we also look at it from the perspective of how do you save costs? How do you, you know, the, the, the AI for fraudulent healthcare claims is a great example. We've been able to save $80 million or help the client save $80 million uh, through that tool. So just someone that is trying to understand, they have a, a business problem and they're not quite sure how to solve it from a technology point of view. We, we do a really good job of coming in to discuss how we can use technology to, to solve their problem. I don't want to go too far down this tangent, but you've mentioned AI twice, and um, I feel like, well, me just personally, I want to ask about it. So I think there has been a lot of talk um, of late about the development of AI and what it means for uh, our future. And there are some people that go to sort of a dystopian nightmare of, you know, when they're artificial, uh, you know, super intelligence that will wipe out the human species. And there's others that say that is just not anywhere close to happening. And, you know, we can harness AI in a narrow sense to perform tasks that we need it. As someone who is seeing what AI is capable of, um, you know, with projects that you're working on, what do you see as its as its benefits and potential drawbacks? The, the drawback is that everyone you know, it's, it's, the, it's the tip of the spear buzzword right now. So everybody's yeah. rushing towards it. And, you know, there's all sorts of different definitions of what it actually means. But but the, the, the drawback we've seen in people actually being able to apply it is their data is disaggregated all over the place. The data engineering and the governance isn't in place to be able to actually apply it effectively and be able to trust it and uh, whatever the business outcome you're seeking is. So, you know, it's easy to come up with the idea. It's hard to actually execute upon it in a way that, is meaningful without doing a lot of legwork up front. So we, we spend a lot of time right now helping our clients prepare for that eventuality, you know, with data governance and, you know, all sorts of other uh, activities to, to, to get them ready. Okay. So the robots aren't coming for us anytime soon? Not yet. Okay. All right. Good to know. Um, you have been in Atlanta for almost two decades now. And so you have... You sound old. <laughs> It is what it is. Just own it. Um, and so, you know, you have seen this city through, I, I think, a number of different iterations. And I'm curious what you – look, we talked about what we're doing great, okay, from a talent perspective. Where do you think we still uh, need some work? So it's interesting. When I, when I moved to Atlanta and I guess I interned here in 99, I moved here in 2000. And I didn't think that I thought the traffic back then was great, right? You know, it was easy. I remember saying to my friends, it was easy to get around, and it was, it was for a while. And uh, today, that is not true. So, I, I think regional transportation and the ability to connect our, you know, from Alpharetta to Midtown and downtown, it, it is not an easy place to get our consultants or to just to do general commerce. So, inve- investing in that transportation system that's is going to take our metro area to the next level. Yeah, I um, I have consistently said that I think that that is the one Achilles heel of this region, that if we plateau, that that's going to be why. Um, and it's there's a huge opportunity there, but um, you also um, – you can be – it is easy to be a pessimist on it, unfortunately. Yeah. All right, so let, let's talk about some of the community activities that you engage in. So one thing I want to touch on is I read um, on your website that you have a pro bono program. Sure. So – we don't do, have anything official, okay. But we 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 are very involved in our communities. Our our business model is to work where we live. So most of our consultants aren't hopping on a jet every week and flying out Monday to Thursday. We're we're trying to staff them locally. Some people prefer to travel, and we we support that as well. But because we do work where we live, it's important for us to be part of our community. And part part of being you know a great place to work is in, engaging out in your community. So. We've done, done a couple of things over the years. We're heavily involved in the food bank ac- across our company. But here in Atlanta, we are involved in the Covenant House, which is a, a, a program for homeless youth. Uh, we've done an app for the Shepherd Center, uh, helping. They kept seeing uh, spinal injuries in children or teens learning how to drive. So we built an app to help parents teach their kids to drive and using telemetry data to understand, hey, maybe you're taking the left turn a little bit too aggressively there and help them to track hours in the car uh, before, before they get, graduate to new levels of, of uh, capability. So that, that's been an interesting one that we're able to talk about, which is nice. And it, it's, it's out in the app stores if you want to go check it out for your own purposes. 
And then finally, uh, the Atlanta Moonride is, uh, is actually presented by CAFTEC. It was supposed to be this evening, but due to the forecasted rain, we've moved that to uh, two weeks from now, June the 21st, and that benefits Bird's Pick Adventure. And it's been just a really unique way for us to bring together both our employees and our clients into a really fun nighttime bike ride through the city. Can you, um, so like, I feel like I know pretty much everything about Atlanta. Even I didn't really understand what the moon ride was. So can you detail it for us? Sure. So it's in Piedmont Park, starts in Piedmont Park, starts and finishes in Piedmont Park. It's about seven o'clock. We kick off a big party uh, in the field there near Park Tavern, the corner of 10th and Monroe. Is a band. Uh, Tito's Vodka is also a sponsor, so it's, it's a pretty fun time. And around 11 o'clock, the, the band shuts down, and we all line up on 10th Street and go out for a ride through the Highlands, down into Inman Park, little five points, back into downtown, and then through Midtown and back to back to the park. So everyone gets a lot of neon on. They decorate their bikes. This year, actually, we built an app so that everyone could stream music together. Uh, we're hitting out armbands so no one's wrecking their bikes while, they, while they're trying to do it. <laughs> And it's just a, it's a really cool experience. About last year, about ten thousand people were involved, and I think wow. about six thousand actually did the ride. So it's it's a it's a it's a really fun, just unique experience for the in town community. I'm I'm such a big fan of you. Got that? You have the Lantern Parade. You have Streets Alive. Yeah. It's um, I think Atlanta's really embracing uh, you know those sort of urban community activities. It's great. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. Um, well, John, if someone wants to get in touch with you and learn more about CapTech, how are they going to do that? So you can reach out to me uh, through our website. You can, you can find me there, um, or you can also find me at jbradway at captechconsulting.com. Great. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay. Next, we've got Chris Duncan from Decisely. How are you doing, Chris? Hey, good morning, Joy. Doing great. Good. So um, headline, elevator pitch on Decisely. Yeah, so Decisely is the one of the leading insurtech firms in the United States, and we basically target small business, uh, small business solutions that recruit to retire technology and benefit solution. Uh, and the unique thing about us is it's all our own technology, uh, and we also have a very unique distribution channel. And our distribution channel is we also solve for traditional insurance brokers' challenges in terms of servicing small business. And that's led us into some really interesting you know, business lines where now we've gone really long into program business. So the big thing in our industry right now is association health plans. And so we aggregate small businesses into collective purchasing pools and really change some lives and change businesses across the U.S. Okay, so why do insurance brokers have an issue servicing small business? Yeah, great question. So uh, so I ran one of the largest insurance brokerage firms in the United States, and so most insurance brokers do really well with mid to large businesses because you got lots of employees, you can deploy all the sorts of economies of scale that you can get at a large business. So if you're Delta Airlines, you got lots of employees and you can get your best deal on insurance. Um, however, if you're a small business, you're getting kind of the worst of the worst. So you're getting the highest cost, poorest coverage, and you're a small business owner trying to run a small business. You don't know anything about insurance. So, um, but brokers themselves really don't, quite frankly, make a lot of money on small business. So that 10-employee group or that 15-employee group just is kind of never, never land. And so for us, we kind of declared that as our mission field, that we we're going to solve that mm -hmm. for small business. And so that's, that's we started the company really to address that. And we started it uh, as part of an outgrowth of what we saw in my own big brokerage business, where we were really struggling with delivering small business solutions. Okay, so this is interesting. It was decisively is sort of an unintended consequence <laughs> of, um, uh, and that's that's not a bad thing. That's just what it is, right? It's uh, you know you were at a different business, you saw a problem, and thus went on to create decisively. Yeah. So um, you know, I, I think one of the great things about being in businesses, you, you see what the environment gives you. And we saw in Silicon Valley, we saw some very well-funded uh, insurtech firms that were really trying to tackle the small business community and, frankly, disintermediate the insurance brokerage community uh, and the insurance carriers, frankly. Uh, and we saw that uh, as a threat to our own business, but we also saw it as an opportunity. And so uh, the CEO of Epic and I got together. We developed a business plan and said, well, gee, I think we can do this you know, on our own and go take on the Silicon Valley guys. And that's exactly what we did. But we came at it from you know, one foot in old school because we understood what it meant to be an insurance broker you know, in small business and all the challenges associated with that. 
Uh, but then we also said we've got to change the game in small business, and that's where the technology side came in. So when you combine those two uh, in a distribution strategy that really was focused on insurance brokers themselves and helping them help their small businesses, uh, that was a game changer for us. So, yeah, we incubated the company internally. I was the very first client, um, so they had to make me happy before we could take the show on the road. Uh, and once we figured out that we had something really great, clients were really responding to it, and we spun the company out into the independent company that is today. Okay. And so you are referring to your time at Epic. Yes. And then on to Decisely. Yeah. T- tell us a little, for those who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about, about Epic. Yeah, Epic is a top, I think they're like a top 10 or 12 insurance broker in the United States at this point. They're headquartered out of California. I commuted back and forth, you know, from Atlanta to San Francisco for about three years. Um, and they do property casualty employee benefits. They're a traditional, super regional to national insurance broker. Okay. Um, so you're a small business. You have, let's say you have 10 employees, mm-hmm. okay? Either no insurance broker is wasting their time with you because they're not going to make a good fee, or if they are, they're probably not the best at what they do because they're having to spend it, time on the small fish. It, it may not be that they're not the best at what they do. It's okay. just in terms of a return on their investment, yeah. you're going to make – here's the way I think of it. You're going to make the same – you're going to make uh, the same people investment and time investment and in a 10-employee company as you will in a 100-employee company, and you're going to make one-tenth of the revenue. Yep. So it's just natural. You're going to focus your business where you can deploy your operating model most effectively. That's why we focus on changing the operating model. So with the technology and the integrations that we do, we've been able to change that and provide the same sort of service as well as through aggregated purchasing, and this is the big the big play, able to change the game both economically and also from a service standpoint for small business. And, and for us, small business, there's about 6 million small businesses in the United States employing about 40 million people out of the 150 million people employed in the United States. Uh, they get the worst of the worst. And so if if you can solve a big problem in a big segment of the population, you probably got a pretty big business. And so um, that's really why we're doing some of the heavy lifting that others have you know, tried and, you know, quite frankly, still struggle with. Okay. So I am the CEO of a 10-person company. Mm-hmm. I'm listening to this, and I'm identifying with these problems. How well, – I guess there's two questions. How does Decisely help me get – good insurance. Mm-hmm. And I think the second is, how did that happen? Like, how, how are you able to yeah. enable that uh, better quality insurance? Yeah, so uh, I'll give you kind of two different angles of where okay. the value is created for the, that 10-employee CEO. The first one is uh, that 10-employee CEO does not have time to manage the medical insurance plus payroll plus how do I f- recruit, how do I handle my onboarding documents, my employee handbook, et cetera. We do all that in an integrated manner with a single technology platform that we developed. So we're saving them time and money so they can focus in on growing their business. So there's value, even if the insurance doesn't change, there's value in how we deliver it to the small business. And that's probably the, that's the mega trend that's going on in small businesses, the traditional insurance broker model of the broker going out and playing golf and then selling you some medical insurance. That just, that's going away. Yeah at least for small businesses. The second one is the, is the larger play. Uh, in the medical insurance world, small businesses are, are treated by the insurance regulators in a specific way. If you're less than 50 employees, there are certain ways that insurance is sold, and that's regulated. If you can change how that insurance is essentially priced and sold, and this is where things like association health plans come in, Association Health Plan is an aggregation. It's a strategic sourcing strategy for small business. So if it's the same trader business, I'll give an example. Napa Auto Parts is one of our largest clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a great company. Um, the Napa program is an aggregation of healthcare purchasing for the independently owned Napa owners across the United States. That came to us from an insurance broker that does property casualty insurance for those same uh Napa stores. So they came to us and said, can you use your technology and your website and your marketing and everything you bring to the table and deploy this, you know, nationally for Napa? And the answer was, yes, we sure can. And so that's changed the game. So those Napa owners on average are saving about 23%, which is over $1,100 per employee. You're a small business. That's big money. Yeah. Uh, the cool thing was with Napa is, and we've seen this with our other clients, is the small business owners are also reinvesting those savings and adding new benefits for their employees that they never had before. So you know, we feel like we're changing people's lives. So the big, the big 
the two for win here is both the technology and how we deliver that insurance. And then when we're able to aggregate this in a collective sourcing strategy, we're really changing the fundamental economics of what it means to be a small business in sourcing insurance. So could a small business go on Decisely's website and essentially, let, let's say they didn't want to go through the traditional brokerage process, mm-hmm. okay? They can go on your website and essentially work with your technology um, directly to find a solution for them? Yes, they can. Uh, However, the way we've designed the company, and we have a lot of clients we call that going direct. We have a lot of direct clients. Uh, However, what we really specialize in is working with other insurance brokers because they already have the business relationship with those small businesses, Mm -hmm. right? So everybody's got some advisor that they're listening to. And they're they're all really smart people and they're doing good work. The problem is they're just not good at small business. Their model doesn't work for small business. And so as opposed to having... 30 different salespeople, you know, talking with 500 individual small businesses. Our business model is we partner with the regional and the national insurance brokers to solve for their small business clients. So we're giving them essentially a, a force extension into small business in a way that they can't deliver for themselves. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're basically your channel. Exactly. So, so they're my channel and they're my partners. Yeah. And so I'm also pretty careful about not competing with my channel partners. Um, and what that's led to is, as we've solved for these small business challenges with traditional other brokers, broker partners, is they've said, well, wow, we've got this association or this franchise um, client corporately. Can you help us with all the individual franchisees or all the association members? And so we say, yeah, we sure can. And so that's where we really, over the past couple of years, our business model is actually, we continue to work with individual small businesses. That's still the core of who we are, Mm -hmm. but that's morphed into this aggregation strategy for associations and franchises with our broker partners. So for us, it's a big game changer from a distribution standpoint. So your sales process is really focusing more on partnerships and channel sales as opposed to, you know, I guess, I guess like direct enterprise sales isn't really a thing, at least in your business right now. Well, it it is for some of our competitive set and, you know, and I wish them luck. Um, But kind of the early stage of InsureTech was um, B2B marketing, you know, using traditional SEO marketing, et cetera, and their business acquisition costs. Uh, to try to get that 10 life, that 10 employee group through SEO marketing and buying Google AdWords, et cetera, they were paying three and four times revenue for SEO marketing to generate that. Our, our business acquisition cost is a fraction of one times. So it's it's a very different business strategy for us. And we feel like we've got, we like the channels that we got. We like uh-huh. our channel partners. And, um, and, and also our, our heritage, right? Our DNA is we started as a traditional insurance broker. We understand what that means. So if we can bring technology to essentially an old school industry uh, inside of a distribution channel that's where they already have business relationships, we feel like that we've got something special. Well, so uh, you, you uh, gave me a really nice leeway and uh, seg- segue into my next question mm-hmm. about disrupting an old school industry. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, you know, I think insurance is one of those industries that is ripe for disruption. Uh, frankly, I feel the same way for my own industry, real estate. It is mm-hmm. ripe for disruption, um, and you see that happening. And so, but it's a heavy lift. Um, it's a heavy lift for those that are on the front line. So clearly, there's a lot of opportunity, but um, you know there are some roadblocks as well. So where 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 do you see this in let's call it five years, or at least where do you want it to be? Well, I, I think it's already here. So you're, you're already seeing the disruption and the disintermediation of kind of the traditional channels in um, kind of think of it as fungible goods, right? So homeowner, auto insurance, life insurance, uh, even a business owner's policy for the local dry cleaner. It's not that different carrier to carrier. Uh, and so that's ripe for disruption because it's, uh, it's a relatively standardized product. And so the internet can disrupt that very easily. So e-commerce is already here. And so there's some really great companies here in Atlanta, uh, like Layer and others, that are already disrupting the business insurance marketplace. Um, However, uh, the benefits in the insurance world are still horribly complex, right? And if you're that small business owner, go back to that 10-employee CEO, he doesn't have time to learn what it means to have, you know, cyber insurance, which is complex, or even employee benefits, which is a very personal and very expensive 
you know, proposition. So they want to talk to a trusted advisor. So those spaces of complexity, mm-hmm. it's just like a, you know, extremely large commercial real estate deals, probably going to have someone like you advising them and working through those details. Uh, maybe on the smaller end of the commercial marketplace, it might be a little different from a commercial real estate standpoint. Same thing as in the insurance business. As long as you need that trusted advisor that's a translation utility for really complex business problems, that space is relatively safe. But where you don't, and it's a, it's a compliance issue, and it's, you just got to check the box at the lowest cost, yeah, that's already being disrupted. I, I think that this goes for so many different industries. The bare minimum um, – of what your job entails, I think just gets higher and higher every year. Um, the bare minimum of, like, essentially, if you are a, if you are an order taker, if you are not adding, uh, you know, strategic thought and value, then, you know, look for something else. Well, and a great point, and, and that's where again back to the kind of the two places that I think we have at least some secret sauce is the integration, the technology is. There are others that are somewhat like us, but there are very, very few that are in this recruit-to-retire technology paradigm. And there's even less that are in this aggregation of small business. I mean, uh, you, you combine those two things together, you know, we've got – I think we've got a sweet spot that's certainly paying out. I think we're adding a lot of value at this point. Recruit-to-retire. I like that. Is, is that a decisively term? That is a decisively term. I love that. And so essentially what that means is that you are working everything from – the initial stage of an employee to when they exit the company. Yeah. If you think of it again, let's go back to that hypothetical CEO. Um, They don't have the time to go figure out which job posting site to use. So we provide them applicant tracking software so they can go find your next employee. Um, And when they like that next employee, the press of the button, it goes into onboarding. So Mm -hmm. they don't have to manage all the paperwork and the filings and the W-2s and the I-9s and the E-verifies. We do all that for them. And then we provide them employee benefits if they choose to have it. Uh, If they want to add in retirement, uh, IRAs and 401ks, we provide that as well. So literally from the employee standpoint and the employer standpoint, it's intended to help that small business run essentially their HR function you know, 90% of an HR function we can do, Yeah. you know, and we don't charge them for it. It's all just, it's part of the technology package that, that we provide. So how, if you don't charge them for it, how do you make money? Yeah. So uh, we get paid commissions uh, on our insurance products, just like anyone else. There are a couple of the services that are, they're optional, like the recruiting. We talked about that. So there is a monthly fee for recruiting, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 bucks a month for unlimited job postings. So we do have a software as service model. But the core of what we do, probably 80% of our clients don't, aren't charged any fees whatsoever. If they want to add in a 401k, then there's going to be some 401k advisory fees and some processing fees that they'll have to pay for. Okay. Um, you, I guess it's not so recent at this point, but maybe, uh, what, 18 months or so ago, you guys raised a decent chunk of change. Yeah, it was about about 24 months ago. Sure okay. Um, and... Uh, it was $60 million, is that right? Yeah, we had commitments of 50, uh, $60 million okay. was the first tranche. So um, that's a big number, especially for an Atlanta company where, <laughs> um, you know, we look, I think I think the city has gotten better on uh, on fundraising, but, you know, still, eight, eight, eight figures is a good sum for an Atlanta-based company. Um, how are you using those funds? Well, well, first, we're not using all of those funds. So mm-hmm. our business is actually doing really well. So that's the great thing about having some really supported private equity. So our owners are Sightway Capital, which is a two-sigma company out of New York. And so they really like the insurance space. So they've got investments on the property casualty side. And then I like to joke that we're the B side of the record. We're the benefit side of their insurance technology record. Um, and for them, it was, uh, you know, it was an interesting investment because we had already done the proof of concept on our own dime inside of Epic. So we were a pretty safe investment for them. Um, where we're putting those funds uh, is we've developed uh, probably 90, 95% of the technology is ours. We've got a few partners that we private labeled, but you know, very few. So we've done a lot of technology development. We think that's part of our secret sauce. Uh, and then the rest of it, frankly, is, you know, operations and execution. Pretty simple business at the end of the day. So this is where I, as the chief operating officer, I've got operations and sales. Uh, it's all about the execution. So it's people and it's technology uh, in support of our, our distribution channels. Let, let's continue on the B theme. Mm-hmm. You are a B Corp. Oh. 
Yeah. I mean, you yeah. you opened the door for me on that yeah, one. Yeah. I, I didn't realize I was doing it at the time. So uh, yeah. yeah. Thank you. It's okay. We're just yeah. telepathic like yeah, that. Yeah, there we go. We're connected. Um, yeah. So what exactly is a B Corp for those who don't know? Yeah. So the B Corp phenomenon really started in California and it's, it's spread globally at this point. There's about 5,000 B Corps across the world at this point and it's a certification process. A B Corp uh, at, its, at its fundamentals is a for-profit company with a social mission of doing good. So this, the whole question of social entrepreneurship, all of these things kind of you're wrapped around it. Every company is trying to do the right thing in their community with their employees. This is actually a certification program. It's kind of like a SOC 2 audit. Uh, by the way, it's painful. Uh, it's, it takes a lot of time and resources to, to jump through those hoops. But it's essentially how do we treat our employees? How do we treat our clients? How do we, how do we basically become a good member in the community? How do we give back to society? And so those are the four sort of big criteria, um, and we've gone through – I think we've been recertified twice at this point. Uh, every two years, you have to go through a recertification process. So B Corp, for-profit company with a social mission of doing good, and our social mission field is small business. So how we run our business, what we do, is part of how we give back and, and fulfill our B mission. Yeah, you, you practice what you preach. Well, it's, you know, if, if you can merge your, your business, where you're going to make money with where your passion is all at the same time, that's a pretty good place to be. It definitely is. It definitely is. I, I feel like um, I, I often like to think of people's professions um, and what they do every day and how it comes off to a stranger at a cocktail party, right? And someone who's talking to you initially might think, oh, they're insurance? Oh, that sounds kind of boring, right? And, and of course, it's anything but when you get a little bit further into it. Well, it's just even worse than that. In my prior life, I was the risk manager of Delta Airlines, and I also had internal audit, information security, privacy. So I was the most boring person at every party. <laughs> Uh, not just insurance, but an auditor and, you know, essentially a compliance geek. So, yeah, no one really talks with me at parties at this point, Joey. Uh, all I have to do is say insurance, and they kind of run away. I'm sorry to bring up that painful uh, topic <laughs> for you then. <laughs> um, did, did I also read that you guys have sponsored or created a benefits degree program? Yeah, that, that's actually another good example where kind of personal passion and corporate alignment come together. So um, I I, I'm a very proud graduate of the University of Georgia in the risk management program there, and it's been made a huge difference in my career. Uh, and about seven or eight years ago, I moved over to the B side, the benefits side of the world. And uh, as I looked around, there's about 45 risk management programs, great programs across the U.S., but, and that accounts for 7% of gross domestic product, property casualty industry. Wow. Okay. However, benefits, including Medicaid and Medicare, is 18, almost 19% of gross domestic product at this point, and there are zero, zero degreed programs in the United States for employee benefits. And so I thought this is a great opportunity to change that. I'm in the benefits business, so let's go do something cool. And um, it just so happened, by luck, I had a great friend of mine that's a tenured professor at Appalachian State in Boone, North Carolina, and they have a top five risk management program. And so I maneuvered my way onto the advisory board, and after a year of maneuvering and, you know, talking about what we might be able to do to get, you know, kids jobs in the benefits industry, uh, we were able to create a benefits minor. So it's the first ever in the United States. And, um, and then as part of that, we were all creating Decisely at the same time. And so Decisely got on board. Uh, so I'm personally involved, but Decisely is also on board. And so we, we do some financial support for the program. Uh, you know, we have internships and we've hired, you know, kids out of App State. Yeah, and elsewhere, so that's great. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really cool. I mean, my view is when you've been in the industry as long as I have, and I love the insurance industry, you got to give back somehow. And so I I am involved with the insurance industry charitable foundation, which is one of the largest you know, foundations for insurance doing good with uh, the insurance industry in the world, uh, and then App State. So and then this uh, benefits minor. So I'm pretty proud of what we've done. We've got I think 22 kids in the program, and it just started two years ago continued theme of doing good while making good money in a business. That's yeah, great. Yeah. Um, if someone wants to learn more about you, how do they get in touch? Yeah, a simple way is to go to decisely.com. Um, a great website, or you can contact me at chris, C-H-R-A-S, at decisely.com. And how do we spell decisely? Oh, Wow, D-E-C-I-S-E-L-Y, okay. decisely.com. Great. Yeah. All right, Chris, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, um, moving on. So you touched on about 18% of GDP, which I believe, uh, Rupin Healthcare is what, about 17 or 18% of GDP at this point? 
Yeah, at least. You know, there's figures out there that say it's uh, approaching a quarter of the economy in the U.S. today. So depending on who you believe and how you double count things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we, we, we can get into that a little bit later. Okay, so we've got uh, Rupin Patel, who is the Chief Strategy Officer of Health Grades. Um, Rupin, you are fairly new to the Chief Strategy Officer role. Yes, in fact, I am. So I just joined Health Grades in January uh, via an acquisition. Uh, prior to Health Grades, I was the CEO of Influence Health, and uh, we just completed the, the transaction in January, and uh, I joined Health Grades as the Chief Strategy Officer. So I love the story of M&A activity, um, which sounds like a really boring, geeky business thing to say, but I, I do think it's very interesting. It's like, you know, you're talking about the marriage of two companies, two families, whatever it might be, um, and how you mesh them together, and it can sometimes be messy, but ultimately you're trying to create this bigger, better whole. So I would love to learn more about how this marriage came together and then tell us a little bit about what this combined organization is now up to. Yeah, before I go into that, um, you know, your analogy about a marriage is actually pretty accurate. I mean, (laughs) in this case, you know, when you're merging companies, you actually have to have a really solid prenup as well. (laughs) So there's a a lot more paperwork in this type of a marriage. Um, But it is a lot about the people and making sure that there's a cultural and mission fit um, before you kind of, uh, you know, step forward into these acquisitions. Um, because, as you know, there's a lot of details that come about. And if you want to get those resolved in a good way, you need to have some core alignment on values and, and what your companies are about. Um, and so I can start there. Uh, the, the core value, the core mission of both companies, Influence Health and Health Grades, um, was always to help consumers, us, all of us, find the best provider at the right time and the right place for whatever is ailing them. So essentially helping consumers to uh, experience better healthcare. Um, and that's a shared sort of core mission. Our business models were very comparable. So we had um, a substantial business uh, at Influence Health selling into health systems to help them reach consumers. And at Health Grades, we also have a substantial business, uh, much larger business, uh, selling into health systems to help reach consumers as well. Um, and there's additional assets that both companies had beyond that sort of overlap area. So at Influence, we had an additional business for health systems to build their own content management system-based websites, mm-hmm. uh, making sure all the information about their physicians online was accurate. Um, and at HealthGrades, a lot of people know HealthGrades as a consumer healthcare search portal, as well as a place to leave reviews and to get more details about physicians. Um, And so if you look at it holistically, uh, the two companies together now have multiple touch points with a consumer, and we can provide a much more holistic experience no matter where a consumer enters into the sort of the digital sphere uh, of healthcare. Um, And our customers, who are large health systems as well as pharma, appreciated the combination. That was the other aspect of this. They also felt now they didn't have to deal with multiple vendors providing parts of the solution, but they could deal with a single vendor that had a single view of the consumer. The most important part of this is having a 360 profile of the consumer so you can provide the right information. So, okay, so this marriage sounds like is uh, strategic for a number of different reasons. One is you have two organizations that were competitors in some fields, but not all, and provide complementary services that when offered as a whole um, is just that much more valuable to a client. That's right. Absolutely. And uh, subsequent to the acquisition, we had a large conference where we brought in 400 plus attendees, all the different health systems we work with. And I got so much good feedback that we're, you know, the customers are coming up to to myself and Rob, who's the CEO, saying, you know, we're so glad you guys did this. Uh, This is great. You know, now we can have a consistent experience, you know, working with a single account manager and having all of these things under one roof. So um, it's been it's been a tremendously uh, good outcome. Uh, frankly, for the customers and ultimately for the consumers, uh, which is really the core of the mission of the company. That's great. Very validating. Very quickly, right? It has, really quickly. hasn't been very long. Yes. It's only been like five or six months, and uh, we feel like we've known each other forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You just feel like you know everything about each That's other. That's right. <laughs> um, okay. So, you have, so you've gone from chief executive officer to chief strategy officer. How has that changed where you spend your time and uh, what, what your day-to-day 
day looks like? Uh, so definitely a shift in responsibility and focus, right? As the CEO, you're responsible for basically everything. Uh, with the chief strategy officer role, I have much more of a focus on uh, things that move the needle in big ways for the company. Uh, these are things like you know corp dev activities, uh, things like strategic partnerships, uh, things that we're doing internally that maybe aren't getting uh, the, the top billing they mm-hmm. should in the company and externally. And so can we bring them up, create a formalized strategy and a mark, go-to-market approach that will kind of bring them up at the top of the agenda and and get them to market, Um, as well as some uh, things I was doing at Influence Health that we're continuing to do at HealthGrades and actually scaling out. One of those is the customer data platform that we announced um, earlier this year. And that's really a commitment of by the company that everything we do will be in a common customer data platform, which we can then provide to our customers, which are the health systems and pharma, to have that 360 view of the consumer. Um, and the, the rationale here is that a lot of what happens in healthcare happens outside of the four walls of the provider's office, right? So the decisions we make, the habits we have, the appointments we miss, um, the the complications that happened to us because we didn't follow the instructions, all of these things are caused and, and sort of instigated outside of the four walls, the provider, um, with a platform that can actually track the right attributes and the right piece of information outside of the four walls. We can actually start to influence the consumers to take better actions to help them get better, faster, longer, et cetera. Okay, so let, let's go into a little bit more detail on that because I think to um, you know maybe the untrained ear, it sounds like um, sort of Big Brother monitoring of uh, people outside of their appointments. So uh, how how are you tracking people outside of their appointments, getting information on them um, to then help preventative care? Um, and their doctors. Yeah, it's a good point. So first of all, everything's through consent, right? With health with healthcare, everything is under HIPAA. We're high trust certified as well. So the the customer, the consumer, is given consent for anything that we do with them once they become a patient. Um, second of all, all this information is usually owned by the provider. And just remember, we work with large health systems and mm-hmm. hospitals. Um, today, the information exists. It's just fragmented. So it's sitting in multiple systems. When you call into the call center, some of the information about you sitting there. When you go into the appointment, some of the information sitting in the EMR. Some of the information may be sitting inside of a pop health system where a long-term condition might be managed. Um, and then there's third-party information about your socioeconomics, demographics, location that's vital because if, for instance, you can't get a ride to the appointment, you're likely to not show up, which is going to be worse for you later. Well, what if we know that and we can suggest to you, hey, uh, there's a partnership we've done with a ride-sharing service at this hospital. We can get you into the hospital free, right? The, the, the ride-sharing service will cover the co- – or the contracts with the ride-sharing service will cover the cost. Little things like that that can sort of help to reduce the friction and ultimately improve the outcome. Well, and, and you and I talked about this when we got coffee, just how jarring it is that you can really tell – interpret so much about someone's health and, um, you know, uh, future outcomes by their zip code. Yes. Um, you know, the same way that you can do that um, to a disturbing degree, frankly, with a child and where they're born and what their lot in life is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a whole uh, theme inside of healthcare right now around social determinants of health. And the tagline is your zip code's more important than your genetic code. And the reason for this is multiple, right? Economics, sometimes it's the access issue. There may not be anything near you, convenient. Food uh, is, is a big issue. We have some health systems that have actually started buying grocery stores and offering prescriptions for food, healthy food, for free to their community locally. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, because it's a huge driver of outcome. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the, the, the quality of life you're going to have ultimately. Oh, well, um, when, when chips are cheaper than apples. That's right. Which one are you going to buy? That's right. Yeah. And, and as long as the incentives are right and as long as the business models get adjusted to account for having more value to keeping people healthier longer, I think we're going to continue to see this trend. That is fascinating. How is, is that 
an isolated um, occurrence right now with health systems buying grocery stores, or is this something that's really spreading? Because I had not heard of that before. Yeah, it's um, it's starting to happen in the areas where the health system sort of has a dominant mm-hmm. position or where the health system has a lot of contracts that are value-based, where they're getting compensated long-term for keeping people healthier. Mm. It's in their best interest to do that. Um, and it's also happening in situations where you have integrated payer and provider. So if you look at an organization like Kaiser, where they're both the provider of the healthcare and they're also the insurer, it's again in their best interest to keep people healthier longer. And so they're going to invest in these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but tell me about your personal journey into the healthcare industry. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, I've been in healthcare for a little over two years, about two and a half years now. Um, prior to this, I was in fintech. Uh, again, a big name, uh, NCR here in Atlanta. I was the CTO for one of the small business divisions. Um, I was recruited into uh, Influence Health originally. And the reason I got interested was that I thought healthcare had a lot of problems that needed to be solved and that the timing was right, right now. And inherently, when you're in healthcare, it's a mission-based field, right? It's, it, it, you just can't help but be mission-based when you're in healthcare because you're actually trying to, at some level, help people get healthier or get the right care. Um, so for those reasons, I sort of entered healthcare. And I've learned quite a bit. You know, I've learned that we've still got a long way to go. Uh, there's still a lot of business uh, uh, sort of incentive alignments that need to happen in the industry as a whole. It's a very complicated industry, much more so than than you could get into, you know, in a 30-second soundbite on the news. Um, there's uh, a lot of uh, sophistication in healthcare that's not obvious to the, to the average person. Um, and you can't just undo all of the things that have been done very easily in order to change it. Um, I, I also think that one of the really exciting things that's happening in healthcare is that the different business models are starting to be sort of unbundled. Um, before you had this notion that you go, let's say, let's take the provider space, the large providers' health systems. You go to the the health system for everything you need, uh, whether it's a cold, uh, whether you you know hurt your arm, you know injured your your knee, uh, whatever it is, you go in for that. Um, over time, we're seeing this unbundling where those things that would fall in this realm of precision medicine, things that we know we can solve quickly and economically, are being sort of unbundled out of these um, larger health systems and being offered locally, right? You could go to your CVS, go to your minute clinics, get a lot of these sort of um, precision medicine items taken care of. Uh, you've got specialized imaging centers that you go to, and they can do x-rays and MRIs much more efficiently at a lower cost um, than sort of in, the, in a large health system. So I think we'll continue to see this unbundling uh, we're seeing it as consumers mm-hmm. uh, with television, you know, unbundling cable, being able to buy channels individually. Um, and we'll see this trend continue to happen. And uh, that, that allows new businesses to pop up that can be super efficient at providing those certain kinds of precision medicine services. Um, there's still this whole realm of what's called intuitive medicine, where you really don't know what the problems are. It's, it's really complicated, and you almost need like a consulting type of model. And I think that's still going to be the stronghold of, of larger organizations for a while. Does the unbundling play into a business opportunity for health grades? Um, in a way, it does, right? So uh, unbundling starts to sort of have another side effect, which is further fragmentation of the data around a consumer, right? So now if I'm going to five different organizations to get care, there's nobody who understands the, the whole 360 view of the care I've gotten and all of the different things that I need to do to make sure that my entire health journey is sort of uh, consistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the experiences are going to be different at each place I go. I'm going to have to redundantly offer the same, you know, what are you allergic to? Uh, what's your insurance? You know, you know that. You filled out the forms 10,000 times, uh, and then they sort of just forget about them, right? Uh, they ask you again when you go to the next provider. Um, so I think there's an opportunity uh, for us as a data company, fundamentally at the heart of what we do and how we offer uh, the services is really data and machine learning. And I think there's an opportunity for us to be that player to provide at least a slice of the data. We're not an EMR company. We're not going to get into the clinical side, mm-hmm. um, but at least the experiential and the social determinants data and everything around that patient engagement experience. You know, I think that's where where we can play. What What is the uh, the bigger goal for health grades over the next 24 months now that you are kind of 
better, faster, stronger as one. Um, yeah, so we've, we're going to continue to do more of what we do today. So we've got two sort of um, main businesses and then a third business that's supporting it. So the, the first main business is our healthgrades.com business, which is for consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, but the business model there is really around health systems, you know, providing a little bit more color around their physicians on healthgrades.com. And then our CRM business, which is this data business. Uh, it's it's called healthcare CRM. It's a little bit different than than um, what you would think of as uh, uh, outside of healthcare CRM. Yeah. Uh, very analytics, predictive modeling, machine learning, um, all of that built into it in order to uh, know who's likely to need what when. Uh, so that business will continue to grow. We're seeing a lot of demand there. Um, and then the third business is really around quality, providing a little bit more transparency and information around the quality of different providers and the outcomes. Uh, for those providers. And that business today um, sort of rates hospitals. You know, we give ratings based on outcomes. Uh, but that information and, and the people there also help to contribute to both of the other two businesses we have. So healthgrades.com leverages some of that quality data right. as well as the CRM business. There's um, a couple of new businesses that we're working on. One is, as I mentioned, this customer data platform, which takes what we do with CRM and sort of supercharges it. Right, gets us into way more channels of information, um, a lot more sophisticated modeling, um, dealing with all kinds of different data. And then there's another uh, business that we're working on, which is adjacent to our web business, healthgrades.com, which really starts to offer more um, payer-centric products, a lot more detail mm-hmm. uh, you know, around that. So there's, there's a couple of different areas that we've been We've been investigating and, and working on, and um, all all of these things are very complementary. At the end of the day, that is all very exciting. Um, if someone wants to learn more about your existing businesses and your future businesses, how do they get in touch? Uh, very easy. First name dot last name Rupin dot Patel at healthgrades.com, um, or just reach out to us on uh, contact us on our website healthgrades.com. Fantastic. Uh, Everyone, thank you for joining us, and thanks for listening to Tech Talk.